Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. I invite you to open your Bibles up to Colossians chapter 1, where we will continue our sermon series that we began a couple of weeks ago going through this book. We're still in chapter 1. We're going to pick up the pace here in a little bit, but chapter 1 is a rich one, and so we spend a lot of time in it. And so we'll begin our reading this morning in chapter 1, verse 15. And so listen as God speaks to us through his word. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this magnificent portrait of Jesus that it paints for us here in this passage. We pray that you would open our minds and hearts to hear it today and that you would apply it to us wherever we need it by the power of the Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, over the past several years, you may have heard a new term, or not new, but uh, that's been used more and more commonly uh, in our circles over the last 10 years, and that is the term deconstruction. Deconstruction. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe not, but what is it? What is deconstruction? As the term suggests, uh, deconstruction is a process through which usually someone who grew up in the church uh, examines the beliefs and the practices and the church cultures uh, that they received as young people. Parents and pastors and friends pass down to uh, those younger than them and the next generation a, a certain set of beliefs and practices and ways of doing Christianity. And the person who goes through deconstruction takes that, uh, that body of truth that they've received, those experiences they've received, and they, they sort of take it apart and they look at each piece of it and ask uh, hard questions about it. If you think about your Christian faith or your experience like a house made of Legos, uh, deconstruction is that process of sort of taking that house apart and examining each piece and, go, and asking questions like, uh, does this house really uh, need this piece? Is this, uh, should this piece be here? Does it belong in the place that it is or should it be in some other place? 
And so, as you can imagine, doing something like that can be a traumatic experience. In other words, another word that people use to describe a process like this is a faith crisis. Because that's what it feels like when you take the truths and the, and the beliefs and the things that you've received from ever since you can remember and you examine them critically, that can be a scary process. And whether maybe you're going through that right now, or maybe you will go through it in the future, but all, but all of us at some point have to examine our faith deeply and that it can be a traumatic experience. Now, this process of deconstruction often ends in one of three places, okay? It presents you with a crossroads of three paths. Uh, for some, the process of deconstruction or a faith crisis results in a stronger, more informed, more invigorated faith. For these uh, who go down this path and end up here, they, they were likely part of uh, a, a Christianity and a, or a Christian culture in which they grew up that needed to be deconstructed. Perhaps there was uh, unbiblical teaching or narcissistic leaders or an unhealthy church culture that needed to be examined critically and to say, you know what, this is not what the Bible teaches about Christianity. I need to, I need to re-examine these things. And at the end of that process, they, they, found they find themselves firmer and stronger in their faith than they were before the crisis. For others, the second road, uh, the process of deconstruction leads to a significant redefinition of faith. Someone who maybe grew up in a more traditional understanding of Christianity uh, embraces a more progressive vision of Christianity where the, uh, where the definitions of faith are significantly altered maybe to fit the, a modern world. Maybe some of the ethical practices the church has taught are, are significantly redefined. And finally, for others, the process of deconstruction leads to a departure from the faith altogether. Where deconstruction leads to deconversion. Well, the Colossians, whether they realize it or not, are standing at that crossroads. They uh, are, there are people in their church that are presenting them with a different vision of what it means to walk with Jesus than the vision and the, and the doctrine that Epaphras had taught them that he had received from the Apostle Paul. And Paul wants this church to take that first path through the crisis of faith. The path that leads to a firmer, stronger, more stable Christian faith. He says it right there in verse 23. He says, God will present you blameless before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now notice here that there is a body of truth that Paul assumes that they have received the hope of the gospel that they had heard. He calls it the faith or the hope of the gospel in which believers need to continue. And so Paul's not envisioning here some sort of a radical reworking of the faith in order to make it work for the new experiences that they're facing, but rather a further grounding in the faith that they already received. A deeper understanding of the faith that they had already been given by Epaphras and by Paul. But what is the faith that he wants them to stay grounded in? Why does he say, if you indeed you continue in the faith? What is that? Where do we go when we experience a crisis of faith? Well, here Paul directs the hearts and the minds of the Colossians to Christ himself. 
It's difficult to see from our English translation, but verses 15 through 20 of this passage are sort of an early creed or an early hymn that's uh, uh, about Jesus that the church likely would have heard from other places. Maybe they had sung it in church or they confessed it when they became a Christian for the first time. But what we see here is that the best medicine for a crisis of faith is a fresh look to return again to the person and work of Jesus himself. Because at the end of the day, friends, we must continue in the faith because Christ is faithful to us. We must continue because Christ is faithful in us. And there are two dimensions to Christ's faithfulness that I want you to see in these verses this morning. Two dimensions of who Jesus is that help us address two of the most common causes of a crisis of faith. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, we must continue in the faith because Christ is our faithful creator. Christ is our faithful creator. This hymn is divided into two verses. uh, Verses 15 and 16, and then verses 18 and 20. And then verse 17, and the first part of verse 18 is actually kind of a bridge between the two. And they each have a very distinct theme to them. And the first verse, Paul focuses on, this creed focuses on uh, Jesus Christ as the divine creator of everything that exists. We see both who he is and what he's done. Let's look at this. Who is Jesus according to this hymn? Look at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul here is asserting what Jesus said during his own lifetime, that he is fully divine. That is what he means when he says that he is the image of the invisible God. He, if you want to see God, you see it in the face of Jesus. Remember that moment in his ministry where one of his disciples, Philip, uh, has heard Jesus talk about the Father, the Father this, the Father that, and Philip finally says, Jesus, okay, you've told us a lot about the Father. Can you show him to us, please? Can you just reveal the Father to us just for a minute? And you can almost hear Jesus sigh a little bit and say, Philip, haven't you been with me? Haven't you heard what I've been saying all throughout my ministry? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. That's what he means when he says that he is the image of the invisible God. He says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Paul isn't saying there that that God's son was sort of the first creature, as if he was part of the creation and just happened to be the first thing that God created. We know that because in the next verse, it says that this firstborn of all creation created everything. And so he is actually stands outside of creation as the creator. But what he means when he says the firstborn of all creation means that as God's son, he and the father existed before, before the creation and that they had this special relationship that existed between the father and son. And that when, the, when they created the world, the father created it through Jesus for Jesus. He's like the special privileged firstborn son that gets all of the glory and gets all of the, um, gets all of the creation uh, as, as a gift to him. That's why I read from Proverbs chapter 8 where you heard almost this voice of this pre-existent wisdom that's talking about, I was there when the earth was created. It was there, it was made for me and, on, and, and so, so on and so forth. But what has this pre-existent Jesus done? Let's look at verse 16. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created uh, through him and for him. 
Paul leaves out no corner of all of the created world when he's speaking about Jesus' creative power. Heaven, earth, the things you can see, the things you can't see, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities refer to anything that you and I might see as being sort of in charge in the world or having power in the world. He says, you can imagine the most powerful thing, most powerful created thing. Jesus made it, and therefore Jesus owns it, and it owes its existence to him and its continued existence to him. Look at verse 17. He says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus didn't just create the world and then check out and say, You know, have, hope it goes well. Add a boy, pat on the back. No, he created it, and now he sustains it by holding it all together. And so, friends, the whole world, the sky and the clouds, from the smallest bacteria that our eyes can't even see, to the blue whale, the biggest creature on earth, from the tip of Tierra del Fuego all the way up to Canada. He created all of it. It's all his. Every country, every culture, every detail known to humankind and every detail that's yet to be discovered. And you. He created you and sustains your life every day. So how does this apply to a crisis of faith? Well, one of the more common crises of faith in our world today has to do with this issue of creation. A ministry called the Barna Group conducted a number of surveys of Christians who had left the church and asked them the question, why did you leave? And one of the, uh, one of the most common answers that they got in that survey was something like this, quote, the church seems to reject much of what science tells us about the world. Or, quote, churches are out of step with the scientific world we live in. Some even believe the church to be anti-science. And there's likely some truth to those claims. Many Christians, maybe you grew up in a, in a tradition like this, have been taught that you have to choose between either being a person of faith or a person of science. You can't be both, you may have been told. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's not the case. In fact, this text provides a biblical basis for genuine scientific inquiry. How is that? Well, because if Jesus is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, in other words, he holds it all together, then that means that we can make scientific discoveries about the world. We can go out into creation. We can explore it. We can ask questions about it. We can probe it. And, and we can know that the discoveries that we make today, if they're, if they're true and they're accurate and they're, they comport with reality, that those things are going to be true tomorrow and they're going to be true the next day and they're going to be true the next day after that. If we don't have anyone holding up the world and, and guaranteeing that sort of consistency in the world, then who knows? Maybe, maybe tomorrow, you know, gravity won't pull you down. It'll push you up. And maybe light won't travel at 186,000 miles per second. Maybe it'll be slow. And then when you flip your lights on, you'll have to wait an hour before the, before the light bulb comes on. But no, Jesus is, is Lord of the creation. He holds it together. And therefore, we can explore the world and know that God is revealing himself through his created world. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says in Psalm 19. And we can listen to his voice in the created world in the same way that we can listen to his voice in his written word. All of revelation is God's revelation. Now, there will be times 
when our scientific discoveries will require us to say something like, I don't know how that fits with a biblical worldview. I don't know. And instead of having that lead to a crisis of faith to say, well, that must mean that that the Bible's all wrong. We can say, you know what? I don't know. Maybe we haven't discovered it yet, but I trust that Jesus has it in his hands. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm going to ask questions and try to figure it out and be curious about it. We'll have to go back to our Bibles maybe and, and, and reinterpret, maybe ask, am I understanding the Bible the way that I should? Does it really teach what I thought it taught? And use that as an opportunity to go back and examine some of the assumptions we may have had about God's word. Maybe it'll cause us to go back and re-examine our scientific discoveries and go, am I understanding this the way that I should? But friends, you don't have to choose between either believing in science or believing in God. By believing in God as the creator, it gives you a basis for for true scientific scientific inquiry. It gives us a basis for that. So don't let a false choice between those two lead to a crisis of faith. Look to Jesus as the faithful creator. So that's the first way in which Jesus' faithfulness uh, helps us in a crisis of faith. The second thing that I want you to see, the second dimension of his faithfulness, is that Christ is our faithful redeemer. Christ is our faithful redeemer. The second half of this creed or this hymn turns to focusing on from Jesus as this pre-existent creator to now focusing our attention on the work that he accomplished in his incarnation and in his death on the cross. He followed, Paul follows a similar structure from the first half. He tells us who Christ is and, and what our Redeemer has done. He says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Notice that Christ is the head of the church. While his work as the creator is focused on all of creation, his work as the redeemer is focused on the church, focused on the community for which he gave his life. And when it says that he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, he's not, they're not talking about him being existing from all eternity. It's saying he's the beginning of a new era. When he was raised from the dead, Christ is the beginning of a new creation for all those who will trust in him. He is the beginning of, of a new era of those who have been reconciled to God. And that word reconciled leads him to, to thinking about what Christ has done as our redeemer. He has reconciled us to God. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? Earlier we saw how Paul spoke about our salvation as being redeemed. Remember what being redeemed is. It's like buying a slave out of slavery where you pay a price and redeem that person out of a situation that they were in. Well, now he uses a different term to talk about what it means to know him. To be reconciled. To be reconciled means to have your relationship restored. To have peace with someone with whom you had hostile relationship before. Uh, he says that in verse 21. He says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind towards God. You know, the gospel is often presented, maybe you've heard it presented like this, as if uh, when you believe the gospel, you have a relationship with God, right? That's not exactly true. You see, everybody has a relationship with God. Whether you're a believer in Christ or not, everyone has a relationship with God. The question is whether you have a reconciled relationship with God or a hostile relationship with God. And what the gospel testifies to us is that God, that Christ has reconciled your relationship with God. Christ has given you peace with him 
by his death on the cross because he took God's hostility that you deserved on the cross into his own body so that you could have peace with your creator. Well, if the perceived conflict between faith and science is one of the more common causes of deconstruction, do you know what the most common cause is? It's the church. In that same survey I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the number one reason people cited for leaving the church was, quote, the hypocrisy of religious people. For some, it may have been manipulative church leaders. For others, it may be this unhealthy culture where you're not allowed to ask any questions, where sin is sort of not dealt with but swept under the rug. And that can be disorienting for, for those who are in the church and the people who, are you, for, who you are supposed to most trust in society turn out to be bad actors, turn out to be those who hide grievous sin, who turn out to be deeply flawed, and that can be a disorienting experience. But this text has a message both for the church and for those who who are thinking of leaving the church on the basis of religious hypocrisy. For the church, remembering that Christ is our faithful redeemer should be the antidote to hypocrisy should be the antidote to hypocrisy. We should not be a place where we feel like we need to pretend that we are better than we are. Why? Because Jesus gave his life to pay for your sins. And so when you try to hide your sins and try to be holier than thou, you're saying, in effect, Jesus, you haven't dealt with this sin that I need to hide, and so I need to take care of it. I need to atone for it for myself. I need to hide it away so that other, people's, uh, so that other people can't see it. But that's not the gospel way. That's not the way the gospel teaches us to deal with sin within the church. We are to bring it out into the open, to confess it, to ask forgiveness from God and forgiveness from the ones against whom we have sinned so that our church culture will not be one of hypocrisy, not be one in which we feel like we need to hide the things that are, that are wrong in our lives, that are sinful in our lives, to hide our struggles, but a, but a community of peace, a community of peace with God, and peace with each other. And so the gospel proclaims to us a message that our church ought to be, ought to be changed by that. And not treating others who don't measure up with harshness or kicking them out because they ask difficult questions. But there's also a message here, not only for the church, but for those who are tempted to leave the church because they see hypocrisy within it. You see, the answer to bad community is not abandoning community, right? God calls us instead to lament over the ways in which the body of Christ has failed to live up to the calling that God has given us. Jesus is the head of the church, which means that Jesus, whenever the church fails, is not going to cut off the rest of his body and just be some sort of floating head. He laments over the ways in which his church has failed. He laments over the ways in which our sin grieves him. And so should you. An excellent example of this is found in the experience of Francis Schaeffer. Some of you may know that name. 
Francis Schaeffer uh, and the Labrie Institute he founded with his wife Edith in Switzerland had a profound influence on the Christian on the uh, on the church in the 20th century. But in 1951, Francis Schaeffer went through a serious crisis of faith. You see, in the late 30s, he had started a, a, a Christian movement where he had left another group of a, a, a denomination. And the group that he founded after, a, after several years, he began to notice something. He began to notice that this group that he had once felt very close to was actually quite mean. <laughs> they preached love about Jesus, but then they didn't act like Jesus in their everyday lives. They were very stringent and doctrinaire and cold, and they, they treated others with whom they disagreed with, with, uh, with, with contempt. And this contradiction between what his community was preaching and what, how they were living led him to a serious crisis of faith in which he said, look, if all of these things that I gave up my life for, these truths about the Christianity, these truths about Christ, if they're true and they have no impact on the lives of these people that I'm around, can they really be true? Which led him to a period of about three months where he called the hayloft experience because he spent a bunch of time in a hayloft somewhere out in the wilderness of Switzerland pacing back and forth, deconstructing his faith and looking at each part of it, looking at the things that he had believed and said, is this really true? Is this really worth giving up my life for? And then at the end of those three months, he said, the, 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 basically the lights came on and I, and, and I saw the, the truth for what it was. And they, he left that experience as a stronger, deeper, more mature Christian with deeper roots sunk down and realizing that the truth of God's word needs to be combined and joined with the love of, of God's community or else it doesn't work. And friends, if, if God can take a, a man like Francis Schaeffer through a crisis of faith and lead him to strength on the other side of it, he can do it with you and he can do it with me. And so if you're tempted to deconstruct your faith and lead, leading to deconversion, or if you feel like you need to radically redefine the Christian faith in order to fit our modern world, be encouraged by stories like Francis Schaeffer and by thousands of others who have gone through equally deep and serious crises of faith and who have lifted up their eyes and their minds and their hearts to Jesus Christ as their creator and their redeemer and have emerged stronger and more faithful on the other side of it. And so whether you're going through it right now, whether it meets you in a year or five years or ten years from now, whenever you experience something difficult that causes you to call, to call your faith into question, look to Jesus Christ and trust that he will lead you through it as your faithful creator and as your faithful redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for all that you have done for us. We are thankful to Christ as our King and our Creator and our Redeemer. Lord, we pray that you would help us wherever we are in our walk of faith, whether we feel at this moment strong, whether we feel at this moment weak, whether we have deep questions or whether uh, we are simply just uh, learning to trust you in a new area of life, please help us walk through it. Turn our hearts and our minds to you by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might emerge from it stronger, more mature, and more convinced followers of Jesus. And we ask all of this in his powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, 
please visit our website at ucbogota.org.